Genesis 12, 1 through 20. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haram. And Abram took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all the possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At the time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward Najib. Now there was a female in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. Famine, sorry. And there was a famine in the land. (laughs) Females too. Lots of them. But there was also a famine. And because of it, Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, I know that you are a woman and beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princess of princess sorry princes of Pharaoh saw her they praised her to Pharaoh and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house and for her sake he dealt well with Abram and he had sheep oxen male donkeys male servants female servants female donkeys and camels but the lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. The word of the Lord. For, uh, before we talk about the scripture this morning, I, um, I want to take just a, a minute to encourage you. I don't know if this is, I know it's true for some of you because I've been involved in your lives enough to know what's happening, but during, during our lives, we're involved in spiritual warfare. It's, it's ongoing. You can ignore it if you want to, but it is a reality of living in a spiritual life and the Christian life is that there is a warfare going on. For those who've served in war, there's kind of the war that keeps going until it's it's declared over, which will happen on Christ's return. But there are battles and skirmishes within a war. Sometimes you're 
sitting there and the bombs aren't falling or there's not active warfare. And then there are seasons in a war when you're in the pitched battle and you find the foxhole and all those things. And I, uh, the last few weeks, um, I, from my perch as pastor, just get to observe and see um, things. And I don't know many of the stories of what's happening, but I can just tell you from calls and the interactions I've had that, that I, I think for many people in our body, there's some active warfare going on. Um, the amount of, of auto accidents, the amount of kinds of sickness that's undiagnosed, things that mark the enemy's territory, it, it happens all the time. I'm not trying to say that there's never an accident or a sickness except in that, but in the life of a body, we need to be keenly aware of skirmishes because the Bible is very clear that spiritual warfare, there is an active element for the body of Christ. That you, your salvation can't be stolen away because it's safe in the care of Jesus. You don't have to worry that God will let go of you. But that if we're wise, right, we'll take James's counsel from the fourth chapter of James that says that he gives grace to the humble and that we are to resist the devil right and he will flee from us so just if you have your bible uh, i'll you don't have you don't necessarily need to turn to it but i want you to just think mark uh, james 4 james 4 6 7 and 8 and i just want you to mark it and i want you to think to yourself this week especially and again some of this is external circumstantial but i don't know what's happening in your own minds and hearts but in mine i'm just aware of increased spiritual warfare, of increased temptation to doubt and to fear. And we have to stand firm. And I want to stand with you, but I also want you to stand with me and our body. And so uh, just listen to what the Scripture would counsel us. God opposes the proud, that is, those who think they know best and go their own way, but He gives grace to the humble, that is, those who submit themselves to God. So submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. So I just want to just commend that to you. And again, if, if life is great, smooth sailing, praise the Lord. You know, we're, we're, we're a diverse group. But I sense, usually before God wants to do something in our lives, corporately or individually, the devil would like nothing better than to just snatch away and get us thinking about other things. So would you just pray with me just for a minute just to commit that. If, if you sense that's from God and whatever, I will lay that before you because I don't want to speak to anyone's individual life and say I know what's going on, but I, I know my email inbox. I know what's happening. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the victor and that we don't need to fear in this war of who will come out victorious because you have already won the ultimate battle, that sin is defeated, it's a dead that the cross has done everything necessary for us to live a new kind of life. But Lord, that doesn't mean the war is over. That doesn't mean we're out of this world and that we don't suffer still from the ill effects of corruption. Lord, for those in our body who are suffering at one level or another, I ask, Lord God, that You would be the victorious God, the One who covers, Lord, and that speaks into situations where Your Word is powerful to disarm the enemy. Lord, don't let us give in to lies that this world just pitches at us that are so pervasive 
that you don't love us, that you're not there, that you're not powerful enough to do anything, that if you were really God, you would have stopped that accident. You would have stopped that person from being sick or dying. Lord, there are so many things, and yet you show your mercy in myriad ways. Lord, help us to see that this life isn't all there is and that we don't count our victories and losses completely in what we see because we're a people that walk by faith because we're called to a promised land. We're called to a land where You reign. And Lord, we know suffering and the cross is a part of that deal. And Lord, we will not shy away from the cross. But Lord, we entrust ourselves to You, drawing near to You as You've drawn near to us. We submit ourselves to You and we resist the devil by prayer and Your Word. And we say by the power and truth of Your Word, that we know, Satan, you will flee from us because the God that is within us is greater than you. Always has been, always will be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, sermon number two. Open to Genesis 12 if you've got your Bible. We are uh, in a a series. We've gotten to what's going to be the meat of the series. I took about four weeks and went through the first 11 chapters of Genesis, talking about a God who creates order out of chaos, a God who creates something out of nothing, and a God who created us, human beings, to reflect Him, to love Him, and be in relationship with Him. Yet, We saw in those first 11 chapters that people decided to go their own way, to be their own gods, to say they knew best, and that the fruit of that was that God continued to love and reveal Himself and pour out, but that we now have introduced to the man Abram, who is going to become the father of this new nation, what we know as the nation of Israel, the Jews, this one individual living in Babylon somehow has an interaction with God, and he's called to go somewhere. He doesn't have any idea where he's going. And so he leaves his home, he leaves his father's house, he leaves the security that comes when you have an identity and and riches, and he's promised by this God to have a, a lineage and a legacy, though all we know about him is that his wife can't have any children. So that's that's in the, even the first promise is in question. He's promised a land. He's promised that through all the all the earth will be blessed through him, but that he's to walk by faith with God. And so we left off two weeks ago at Genesis 12, one through three, three of the most pivotal verses in all of Scripture, where this promise, this unconditional promise, to bless Abram. There are conditions in the promise of Abram, as there are in all conditions, that if we want to walk in everything God has for us, it takes obedience. But sometimes God gives this blessing that's simply, Abram, I'm going to work through your line and your lineage. And following those three verses, if you have your Bible, I want you to open to verse 4, three of I think one of the most encouraging and important words, sorry, I'm buzzing here, three of the most encouraging and important words in the Bible follow these three verses. And in verse 4, just three little words, begins Genesis 12, verse 4. After this promise that he's supposed to leave the country, leave Haran, which is up in Babylon, what's kind of present-day Iraq and just north of the Promised Land. And he says, the Bible says, So Abram 
went. Now, you may think, maybe tempted to take those words for granted and just say, well, yeah, of course he went. God said go and he went. You realize not every Bible character, when God said go, they actually went, right? That, that's not, they said to Jonah, he said to Jonah, Jonah, I have this job for you to do in Nineveh, and I want you to go. And the Jonah, in the third verse, it says, but Jonah fled, right? The rich young ruler in front of Jesus, and Jesus says, I want you to stop trusting in your great wealth, and I want you to come and follow me. Does it say, and the rich young ruler went? No. It says, he left. He turned the other way. Raw obedience to what the Scripture commands is part of the deal. It's part of the interaction. And that each one of us is faced with, I don't care what your age is, I don't care what your status of life is, you are going to be faced with God calling you in the beginning to repent and believe in Him, to turn away from trusting yourself and to put your life in the hands of Christ. And He leaves us, He doesn't rob us of the dignity of choice in that. But that, let's not gloss over, and Abram went. Because what we know of him, we learn in Acts 7, as Stephen is preaching right before he becomes the first martyr of the church, and we find out that uh, Stephen says, God gave Abram no inheritance in the promised land, not even one foot was his, but he promised to give it as a possession to his offspring, even though he couldn't have any children. Hello? I'm going to give this promise to you, and there's no way for you to fulfill it because you're barren. Abram, I want you to go and leave everything you know. I want you to leave your identity. I want you to leave your homeland. I want you to leave these things. And I want you to go to a place that I'll show you. You have no idea, and there's no natural way to fulfill that. And Abram went. Not only did he go, he didn't give himself a chance to come back. Let's look at verse 5. He says, And Abram took his wife, Sarai, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions they'd gathered, and the people they'd acquired in Haran. It was a, uh, you know, at, at that day they had sort of a whole cohort. He was like a shepherd, and he would have lots of flocks and needed lots of people to work for him and to be with him. And so he took everything with them. No scouting parties. No, we'll see how it works out. We'll see what the land looks like. He takes it, and he's all in. Yeah? Any of you play? Poker, right? There's that moment when you push it all in and say, I, I think I, I, I think this is enough to, to do it. Well, he pushes it all in and he says, I, I'm there, I'm going. And then he comes to the land of Canaan. I don't know, I can't tell you what God's calling you to other than I know He's calling every human being to turn from their own way and believe in Jesus Christ. I can tell you that every one of you is called to forgive those who've wounded you and injured you. I can tell you that, that every one of us is called to give. Believers are called to give and lay down their life and live like Christ. 
to particularize and to contextualize what you're called to in your offices, in your homes, in your situations. God's going to call each one of us how we do those things, plus many, many others. Some of you may be called to, to radical obedience. Many of you have been. That maybe not every one of us is. But my deepest wish for each of us is that we would say, yes, God, I'll go if you call me to go. And you don't see how you're going to have a child when your wife is barren and you've promised me this, but Lord, I'm going to take the first step and I want you to show me, Lord, how to walk with you. Because this is Abram modeling this walk of faith that says, I'm going to go, but you've got to lead me and go with me. And Abram had God's Word. He didn't go on his own. He had the Word of the Lord with him. He had the promise of God. And he went. And he didn't know how it was going to work out. We get the privilege thousand years later, of, of 2,000 years later, 3,000 years later, of seeing how it worked out. It's actually about 4,000 years later. But we see it, but he didn't. When he gets to Canaan, appreciating the fact that this walk that Abram had was pretty new, this God was not someone that he had, he couldn't like turn to his uh, spiritual mentors back in Babylon and say, now, now what did you do when God spoke to you? This is a unique call. And so, what does Abram do when he reaches the promised land? He gets there in verse 6. When he gets there, he passes through the land, this, the northern part, and he gets to a town called Shechem, the Oak of Morah. They would mark places, high places, in that culture and in that time, and in religious uh, festivals at that time. You'd mark trees and rocks and tops of hills, and, and physical landmarks would become sacred places. That was simply the way it was done. Abram didn't know any better. We know that God's the God of all things, but that he was doing the best he could to understand where is God in this? How do I understand Him? And what He begins to do is He begins to build altars. And we find out in verse 6 that He builds an altar. Uh, it, there were Canaanites or other people in the land living there at the time that He had promised Him. And that's, that's a whole other story that we'll, we will get to partly in Genesis. But the Lord appears in verse 7 to Abram and repeats this promise, to your offspring I'll give this land. How encouraging that God confirms His Word. He didn't just leave him. This is a long time. This is no short travel to take a caravan of people from where he was. This is weeks or months, who knows how long later, and he gets a confirming word to say to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent, another town, and, and they're, they're trying to obviously find a place where they can begin to build a life in this promised land. He doesn't have the complete blueprint. He just knows he's supposed to go to this land and, and find this God who's promised it to him. And what does he do again? He builds an altar to the Lord. He's beginning to acknowledge a God he doesn't know well. Now, I don't know where each of us are. Each of us are in many different places in our spiritual walk. Some of us have walked with the Lord for decades, and I still feel like I know about that much of Him. Some of you have just walked with the Lord a few days or weeks or, or a year. 
But I would encourage you where you are to build an altar at points in your life. And what does that mean to us? I mean, piling rocks in your yard? Well, maybe. I have actually a rock buried in four corners of my yard. It's just an acknowledgement. It says property, but that's another story. The altars that you build, the altars that you build are places and legacies that you leave that you can look at that reminded you of when God was present. See, the point of the altar is to build something that lasts. That's why they did it out of rocks and not out of sand. All through the Bible, they would pile things that would last for a while, and they could go back by there and say, you know what, I remember when God met me here. Now, if you have no idea if God's ever met you in your life, then come talk to us, because you need to trust Him and believe in Him and see Him and know Him. But for those of you who can remember, I don't care if it was back when you were a young kid. Do you remember when God was so present in your life? Do you remember a time when you knew that God was real? Well, then I want you to think about how do I build an altar? How do I leave something lasting? Maybe it's simply writing it out in a journal. Do your kids know, parents or grandparents, do your kids know when God showed up in your life? It's an altar to tell them and share with them, do you know that God's real to me and this is a time of my life? I, my, my kids can recite a few of the stories from when God showed up. I probably there's many more that they can't. But I think we can learn from Abram to build altars lasting to remind us that even when it's hard, I remember when God was there. And it's amazing how He continues to show up at these places where they built altars. Shechem, Bethel, you're going to begin to see, interestingly enough, Isaac and Jacob, child, grandchild, are going to encounter God at the same places where He built an altar. Wouldn't it be great if your kids encountered Jesus and they happened to do it through altars you built? That would be exciting to me. Then we get to this weird little story about Abram and Sarah in Egypt. And I'll tell you, this is a strange one. This is a hard... You have this man of faith who's just left everything, and I've told us, man, Abram went, he is the dude, and he sells out his wife as his sister. This is no, this is no bueno, guys. This is not a good look for a patriarch. Okay? Interestingly enough, let me tell you two things I find very interesting about this story that's really a shameful story for Abram in many ways, but it's interesting that the Bible really doesn't either condone or condemn it. The Bible lays this out as it was, and it doesn't actually give editorial comment. The reader is to decide, was this good or not? I can tell you from the Scripture and from how God laid out, this wasn't. But every piece of historic literature that you would read in the, in the time period, this is going to be written and compiled. It happened, they think, 1900 B.C., something like that. But it was compiled much later. Right? This was oral tradition that was compiled. Everything else written around here, your heroes are perfect. Right? This is way before like Homer and things were written, but you look at the gods and the, the people the stories are written about, there's no flaws in any of the heroes. They're flawless, perfect, godlike people. The Bible is the only book written where real men and real women who make stupid choices along with great choices are profiled in a way that we could actually relate to. 
Because I've done stupid things. I've never sold my wife as my sister. My daughter, she looks like, but not my sister. I've never sold her as that, but that's, you know, the... I've done stupid things that I can't even justify. And I look at Abram and I, I condemn him as I sit and look at myself and think, you're the same idiot sometimes. I appreciate a book that doesn't gloss over human frailty. It's interesting to me just the way it writes it out as it was. And I want to ask you a question. Why in the time period, if there was a famine, so we have a lengthy time when a famine, or a female, as some people would say, as a, sorry, Tori, you know I love you. Um, as, as the famine occurs, and it doesn't occur overnight, right? It's a long, slow decline. To get to Egypt from where he was is a long journey. To stay in Egypt through a famine is a long time. We're probably looking at years because famines are usually seasonal and last several seasons to get to the point where your reserves are out. Why does the Bible in years of Abram's life give us this story as the only one we know about? Didn't he do anything right in this? What is God, what is the Scripture trying to communicate to us about what happens here? And let me... Let me just, I don't know. I can't say for sure. It doesn't, it would, it would say it if it was clear, but let me just give you uh, my two cents on this, okay? When we were, when I was in, um, Fairfax County, uh, driving, you know, learning to drive at high, Woodson High School in the 1970s, they taught us this little acronym. If any of you all grew up in this era, you could probably say it with me because they drilled it into our heads. IPDE, I-P-D-E, identify, predict, decide, and execute. That's what they taught Fairfax County drivers, and they sent 16-year-olds out on the road to be, you know, like terrorizing Fairfax County. <laughs> identify, predict, decide, execute. So you're supposed to identify the potential problem, predict that somebody might make a bad decision, you know, decide to, uh, you know, put on the brakes or whatever, and then execute and actually put on the brakes. So that was what they taught us. And I, I tell you that because I feel like as Abram enters the land, this is exactly what he does. Let's look together at how, he, how Abram negotiates what's going to come. Verse 11 when he was about to enter Egypt. He wasn't even there yet. He didn't let the problem come to him. He identified a potential problem. What's the problem? His wife is really beautiful. Okay. He predicts that Pharaoh and or other people, powerful people, are going to want to marry her and kill him. Okay. He decides he's going to now, we could say he lied, but I just tell you that in Genesis 20.12, we learn that Sarai is his half-sister. So it wasn't really a lie. It was a half-truth. That is so much better for my soul when I tell half-truths rather than lies. But you know what a half-truth is in God's economy? A lie. But maybe, well, you know, Abraham said, oh, I didn't lie. She is my sister. I just left out the wife part. I'm sure that comforts all the wives here, right? It was it was a lie. So he decides he'll tell a half truth, and he executes the plan. So that's verses eleven all the way down to sixteen. Do you realize there's one character missing in all those verses that's never mentioned? He's a fairly major Bible character called God. And he's never mentioned. 
Because Abram had decided how this was going to play out, what he would do about it, how the problem was going to be worked out, and this guy who was called to a new land, who was called by a God, who was building altars, all of a sudden, and I, I give the guy, I mean, he's in a famine, it, life is tough, I get it, I, I mean, I'm condemning myself because I do it too, but he forgot the God who called him. He didn't say, God, I'm, I submit to you this worry I have, what should I do? There's no sense of asking God's counsel. There's no sense of uh, submitting to the Word of, of what this God who had shown Himself so powerfully to protect Him all this time. Nothing. Here's the other point. Abram's plan works beautifully. Right? He actually enriches himself, doesn't he? Pharaoh comes out. And Abram is a sinful louse through this. Abram's gonna, Abram won't, the consequences of this will manifest themselves. He actually is gonna do this again. And you can say, why didn't God punish him? Why didn't God, you know, I mean, he could have snagged him up. I don't know. God has his ways and purposes. What I know is this. God was faithful to his promise when Abram was faithless to his. Faithless to his marriage covenant, faithless to Ask God. And this is not about Abram. This is not for us to look at. I don't believe this. And we can easily as readers say, he blew it. But I believe what why this is in here is that this tells us that it's not that God's promise to us is not primarily dependent on your good days and your bad days. What do I mean by that? Is that I received Jesus Christ when I was 17 years old, just before my 17th birthday. And I trusted in Him. I decided, Lord, there's no other way. It's, It's either you or life is meaningless. And in the last lots of years, between now and then, I've had some really good up times I've I've seen God move in a lot of ways and I feel so blessed. But I could sit here and give you a litany of my failures. And at no time did God pull his love and promise to bring me to himself. Because the gospel is this, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not while we were clean and doing well and perfectly trusting in Him. Then He died for you. Then He loves you. But man, when you screw up, He is not around because He turns His back on sinners. Jesus' arms are wide open. Now, does He condone it? Does He say there's no consequence? No. There is consequence. Abram will have consequence. We will see as we go through because... God is a father that disciplines children that he loves, but they're never not children. Your children, as mine do, well, once in a while they make mistakes. They're still my children. They're still your children. And you are still a child of God. And Abram is going to learn. And Abram's going to grow.
The gospel is this, free and undeserved grace. It's not dependent on your righteousness, it's, but it's on your depending on His righteousness. And if you're willing to confess and believe and depend, then it doesn't condone your sin, it atones for your sin. It says, yes, you've fallen short, but that I paid the penalty. That is the gospel. And it is the good news for all of us. If you don't know that, if you've never received that, if it seems too good to be true, it is and it is. It's too good and it is true. Abram's our model of walking in faith, but he's also a model of someone who understood what it's like to not be perfect and yet still have the promise of God in him. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, You've set the promise within us. Lord, the promise that if we will turn to You, if we will repent and believe, Lord, everything You have already accomplished becomes ours in a moment. And then You call us to walk rightly with You. But Lord, we know that there's a cross when we fall. Lord, we thank You that in the reality of Abram's ups and downs, of being a man of amazing faith, as well as one of deceit and cowardice, we can see ourselves in both places. Our sins may not be His, but they are just as present. And so, Lord, we lay ourselves before You and we ask that the reality of a God who loves us when we don't deserve to be loved but deserve to be turned out, would so strike our hearts that we wouldn't spit on Your grace, but that we would walk in the rightness and the righteousness You've called us to because we have no fear of falling. Thank You for being a father, Lord. We were once fatherless, but You've adopted us into Your family and so we can walk without fear. Lord, we give thanks to You for all these things. We can bank upon what You've done. And we're rich indeed. I just want to take one more minute of silence before we close in worship. I can ask you to just Pray to the Lord. Ask the Lord to reveal Himself to you and anything He wants to speak to you in particular in your circumstances and situation about. Just take a moment.